Canada. I'm your host, Kevin Annett. It's September 17th. Welcome back to you all. Solidarity. Well, it means mutual aid at a critical moment. Now, we are in a critical moment, brothers and sisters. You know that. I don't need uh, to convince you of something we learn every day. The question is, what are we going to do about it? And the theme on the show for the last two and a half years since we launched it has been it's in our hands. It's in the common law. It's in our own experience. We know what the problem is. Now it's always a question of what are we going to do about it. So this show has tried to be a platform for that. We've been struggling to do that against the usual enormous odds. We've had some great successes, like we have on this campaign for the last 25 years, to expose genocide and stop crimes in our own backyard. We are, because of what we're facing, planning to make a shift on this program. And before we get to our, our uh, guest, Collier Clark, today, I want to talk about that. The shift we're going to make is starting on October 1st. We're going to relaunch the program with a new name, Here We Stand, and a whole new theme going beyond mere analysis and commentary as a news program to an actual instructive training program at a higher level of understanding and action. And I won't spill the beans about all that. We're going to go into that in more detail in the last scheduled program of Radio Free Canada next Sunday, the 24th, followed starting on Sunday, October 1st, with the first program of Here We Stand. Same time and same place, Sunday, 3 p.m. Pacific time here at BBS Radio. And uh, I'll leave that for now, and we can talk more about that next week. Now, of course, the whole theme as well of the show is personal courage, because, as we know, you can't do anything in life without it. Without courage and will, a human being is nothing. And that's often the critical element missing in all of these things. I think if we know too much of the problem, if we see too much of the enemy come in at us, we forget it's those personal attributes of valor and determination which make a difference in any struggle. And I want to read you something to remind you why we're here and why courage is so important. Sorry, just taking off my glasses because I can't read up close with them. This is taken from my book, Fallen, the story of the Vancouver Four. You can get this and all my other books at Amazon.com. It's a quote from Arnold Peters, who I interviewed in the year 2011. He went to the Kamloops Catholic Indian School, where children were murdered, where our friend, who was also killed, William Coombs, saw ten children abducted forever, never to return, by the Queen of England, Elizabeth Windsor, in 1964. Well, this is what Arnold Peters has to say. I was on the burial detail of the school, so I saw a lot of what went on. I remember this one boy was in bad shape. The priest had used him really bad, and he was almost gone. The senior priest ordered us to get rid of him out back. We didn't dare say no, so we dragged the kid out and threw him in the hole and threw in the dirt. I didn't think he was still breathing, but I couldn't get that kid out of my mind, so I snuck back out early the next morning. What I saw made me sick. The kid had tried digging out of that grave. His hand was still sticking out of the ground. That's as far as it got. Well, multiply that 60,000 and more times, and you've got the crime scene called Canada, and, of course, the same crime all over the world. But we have struggled to confront these criminals and to stop them. And we realize, of course, now that they're still in charge, it's something you can't do unless you take on the system as a whole. There's no avenue of redress or justice within the system as it stands now, because the criminals are still in power. That's why we've been emphasizing the common law action and training. And, unfortunately, had such a very poor response, very little response from people, because it's a big step to take. It means you're standing up and standing on the front lines. Well, today we're going to talk with a veteran again, Colia Clark, a veteran of the civil rights movement. And not just that, as Colia said in a previous interview, I didn't join the struggle, I was born into it part of a poor sharecropper family in the Mississippi Delta. She was born into racism and poverty and oppression. She realized that she had to fight or die from a very young age. It wasn't an abstract question. Politics was her lifeblood, and she's still acting that out uh, in her 70s, her late 70s now. She's my friend and sister, and it's an honor to have her on the show again. She'll be on in a couple of minutes. 
Uh, one of the things that we're going to talk about is what we aired in the last few shows, an historic report that came out on the ITCCS network, September 5th, uh, a report to the world, really, about um, the ongoing crimes of genocide in Canada. And some of the recommendations of the report that went out to all of the governments and people of the world is that we want... Um, special groups to come into Canada to protect people on the ground. We need uh, peacekeepers in the country to help us who are struggling to bring this out. We need Canada, the Vatican, and England indicted at the UN and expelled from that body. But more than that, because we know in a way those are utopian demands, governments tend to back each other up in this global corporatocracy and tyranny that we live in. What we need on the ground, friends, is community sanctions. We've got to take our own direct actions at these criminals not just citizen arrests, but also seizing the property and wealth of these criminal bodies. Now, I'm bringing Kali on again today because she's an expert in this. She knows how to build community movements that win from the grassroots up. She was involved in uh, in life and death struggles in the South and the Civil Rights Movement. And we're going to talk today about a number of things, including where is America going? Where is the world going, if you like? Um, can ordinary people unite to actually reclaim their nations from these wealthy oligarchs who are running it? Perhaps epitomized by that little kid in the White House with a psychopathic personality. You know, it's like we don't need billionaire autocrats to tell us what to do or to save us at all. We, the people, can do it. How do we unite, though, across party, class, and racial lines? That's what we're going to be talking about today. And uh, we'll have a little bit more at the end. And again, stay tuned next week for a discussion of our new upcoming format and title, Here We Stand. Follow our work, itccs.org, murderbydecree.com. And also go to that itccs.org website to read that September 5th report that we're going to be talking about today. Now, without further ado, I have Sister Collier out with me. Hey, Collier, how are you? Hey there, Kevin. How are you? I'm wonderful. How about you? Oh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get up from yesterday's uh, memorial service with them. Um, um, my my dear brother, who just went home down in um, Washington, there, the Dick, Dick Gregory, Dick Gregory, there, the great Dick Gregory. And yeah, do you want to? Why don't we kick off talking a bit about him? Who was he for the younger folks who don't know him? Well, for the younger folk who won't, who don't know and who should know, Dick Gregory was one of the finest men to begin with. But he's also an activist organizer and is known for his ability to truly wreck havoc, havoc on, on the enemy with, 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 with his comedy. Yeah. And his comedy, it was his comedy that was so unusual that even in the early 1960s, Dick Gregory could go into white clubs and talk about white folks' demetry and, and major issues and have them laugh at themselves. Right. So this is the brother that was going home. It was, I tell you, a huge house, a huge one of those mega churches, with everybody there, including um, Minister Louis Farrakhan, who actually gave his eulogy. Minister Louis Farrakhan is from the Nation of Islam, which I found very interesting for him to be doing the eulogy. But he knew everybody. He worked with everybody. He worked with right. Dr. King. He worked with Mega Evers. He worked with Malcolm X. was very close to Malcolm. So he was a man who had worked with the great leaders of the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. <laughs> and now, of course, it had come his time, and we don't know really why that time, but um, he was going home in, in his 84th year, so he was not a baby. Uh, but I know, I met him once. Uh, I was on a few years ago when I was in Harlem. I was on his radio show. He was a really wonderful man, really open-hearted, really open to hearing about stuff he didn't know about, so he really impressed me. Yes, and he was international, so, I mean, he impressed people all across the globe, and they were in the house yesterday uh, to say farewell and to give blessings to his family and the, the wife and ten children. Uh, so it was a wonderful, wonderful meeting. But the great part of this meeting for me, because people generally you know, we, we talk about the black leaders who are going to come and the leaders from all over Europe and, and America who are essentially white leaders, uh, but nobody ever talks about the indigenous leaders. Right. Yesterday in the House was Muscle Russell Marines, folk people from the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, South Dakota, great friend of Dick Gregory, and he brought with him eight other Indian nations, including uh, these new black confederations. And it was just remarkable that they were so well received. But to say, you know, that the, to, 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 to draw a line between us 
when at the beginning of what we call today the United States of America, in fact, let's be very honest, the, what, we, what we call the beginning of Little Turtle, that includes Canada, um, yep. and, and, and this invasion, this great invasion, this, uh, for, for which the goal, according to Norm Chomsky, in a quote from Chomsky's work, uh, Hopes and Prospects, that's Norm Chomsky, Hopes and Prospects, Chomsky is a philosopher, great philosopher. But Chomsky has a quote from George Washington's papers when he talks about the goal of, now George Washington, the first, the first in quotes, president of the United States under the Constitution. That would be the first one under the New Republic. Mm-hmm. Washington speaking to um, a group of, um, of Confederates, in not the Southern Confederates, but we're talking now about the beginning of the nation, the and this was the initial council of the Confederacy. So he was speaking to them about what would be the goal of this new republic. This was 1787, and he made this quote, and it's urgent that we remember this quote, that the goal of a new republic will be to destroy the wolf along with the savage. Right. And he continues to say, now who is the savage? The savage is the indigenous population. So this is the goal of the new republic. So when people talk about pulling down monuments and doing this and doing that, what is the goal of the new republic? Mm-hmm. Because the goal is the overall thing. So this will help us to begin to understand some of the critical issues that we're dealing with when it comes to the outright genocide against right. indigenous people uh, in Little Turtle. On the face right. Of Little Turtle. Uh, and, you know, I read a quote before you came on about, uh, from uh, uh, a survivor of the Kamloops Catholic School. And he said they buried a kid, but he wasn't dead. They came out the next day, and the kid had tried to claw himself out of the grave, oh. obviously suffocated to death in there. And to me, Coley, that's like a symbol. The truth keeps trying to crawl out of these graves, and they do their best to keep burying these graves and trying to make us forget about what they did, what they're still doing. So, you know, I, I, I want to kind of put that in the whole context of what we're going to talk about today and what you've already raised, which is, this genocide is ongoing. It's happening now. The children are being trafficked. People are being forced off their land as we speak to get the uranium, like in the Black Hills, the oil, the water. And we've got to take a stand with them. So let's get into that. Let's talk a little bit about what lessons can you bring from the civil rights movement about building well, alliances? Let's talk about the urgency of the now. Yeah, First let's of do all, it. We need to look at the. Uh, that, that, that's from Dr. King. Dr. King said yep. the urgency of the night, because it's right now that we, we're in this urgent, and he was talking about this in 1965, 66, 67, this urgency to be able to address immediately the genocide, because if we continue to pretend that we are being incorporated into something good, that's the first thing, then we got problems. So the, mm-hmm. the urgency is that we have to address the initial needs of indigenous populations in Canada and in the U.S., and please don't separate them from the other group who was there on arrival, who didn't even get a breath of fresh air from George Washington because they were his slaves. That mm-hmm. is the African group. So the urgency of the now is to bring together the African and the native, the native and the African, on this western continent. Many of these natives yesterday came in from black confederated groups, which is fine. I mean, I'm not knocking black confederated groups, but I think that we need to understand that we're talking about confederating under what? Under an enemy state. So we have to come together, and that's the urgency, the two of us coming together. As the brother who came in yesterday from, um, from AIM instructed, you know, we have to gather together our resources, and that's why they were there, the nine nations our mm-hmm. drums included, because uh, we've got to gather our resources. We sit down together. I don't care where we do it, but we've got to gather, we get together whether we're going to be in what's called Canada or whether we're going to mm-hmm. be in what's called the United States of America and to lay out a plan, Kevin. We have to have a plan of action. One, right. Now, you know, I remember that famous scene, at least it was in the movie about Malcolm X. I don't know if it happened in real life, but a young white woman came up to Malcolm and said, you know what, I'm a well-meaning white person. What what role do I have in your movement? And he said, none. Now, maybe he changed that idea later, but I remember him saying at one point, the only white man he'd ever trust is John Brown, because he took yeah. actually took up arms against his own people to, to end slavery. Now, tell, speak to some of the, my people. Speak to, like, what is, what is the role of a, of a white person who wants to break from this whole system? What do they do? Well, I think it's very important that we understand that whites understand that this is, this is their system. That's the first thing. 
mm-hmm. whether you want to believe it or not, this is your system. Now, you might have come in uh, uh, yourselves as essentially slaves, that is, grabbed out of cells and then and Europe are grabbed on the street and thrown on ships and whatever. But the buying into white supremacy mm-hmm. uh, is what the, where, where the crisis begins. So we've got to begin to say the whites. You've got to address whites and the issue of white supremacy right. and how that has caused us to be caught up in this national thing called the USA, called Canada, where we see whites buying in and therefore feeling that they need to what? to support the system, that somehow anybody rising up and saying, you know, I, I, I disagree with this, I don't want to be a slave, I don't want to live out here in these reservations, I don't want to have my wife and children raped and killed, I don't want these things. So we have got to get whites to the point where they understand that the major role is to be John Brown, that is to embrace and accept this is what it is. This is an enemy state. Yep. We have done terrible wrong here. So once you embrace that, you can de- begin to become a John Brown. And there are many types of John Brown. Not all John Browns are going to be people who go around all over all over the South and into the Midwest with guns. Other John Browns will be, as have been Sloan Coffin and some of the great religious leaders, as have been some of, 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 of the radicals who have formed well, Occupy Wall Street or whatever. Mm-hmm. There are different types of John Browns. But they did it to what? To point to what the real issues were, that the real issues is a capitalist state formed by a very few Europeans under the leadership of the kingdoms of Europe, notably France, Holland, the Dutch, and the British, and the British being the, and ultimately the major player. So to begin to to do some truth-telling, Kevin, I think is what we are Uh down to. If we can get whites to begin to truth tell, and don't come to my community. You don't need to come to the native community. You don't need to come into the African community. You don't need to come into the Latin and brown communities or the yellow communities. Go to your whites as you create these colors. Go to the white community because that's where the education really desperately needs to take place. Because once whites begin to understand what they're caught up in and why it never seems to work, that as soon as you think you got something started, you get another recession, depression, or whatever. Once they begin to understand that, that they begin to understand the fight back uh, from indigenous populations. People are saying, no, we do not want uh, to be the victims of your genocide. Whites can do that. Whites well, are doing that in, in many instances. But that is where we are, it seems to me. You know, um, Collie, I, I found, you know, over the years, trying to confront my own people over the crimes, uh, you know, in their own churches, I'm telling you, it's a dead zone. You know, we appeal to conscience, and it's not there, sister. You know, we're talking about a handful, I think, in my people are willing to break. And those of us who do try to break, the boot comes down on us just as hard. And um, it's kind of ironic, because I know in my own situation, I'm in, I face more troubles in the day than one, in the, than one of the bought-off Native chiefs do, even though they, they pretend to be indigenous. They're in a lot better shape than I am. And that's what happens to anybody who goes up against the system, no matter what their, their so-called color. So we got to kind of reach out to that minority who are struggling really hard to do the right thing. And uh, I know you got lessons of, of how to do that. I, w- I wanted to... Yeah, but let's talk about that, right. because that was a problem with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Yeah. When it said to whites in 1966, following the call here for black power, when black mm-hmm. people began to understand, one, that we were Africans, and that was an all right thing, our color was an all right thing, black people began to politicize themselves. Uh, and so what you saw happening is blacks began to say to whites who had been from the onset a valuable part of the development of the civil rights movement in the United States. No question about it, especially mm-hmm. the youth movements. Yep. Uh, so began to say, you know, you go home now and work with your own people. We need you to do that. Mm-hmm. Because it's your people who are coming with the lynching. It's your people with the shooting and with the guns. It's your people with the laws that are designed to destroy us all, including the Native American Civil Rights Act of 1968 as a part of killing Dr. King, and then you pass the Civil Rights Act, large part of it is Native Americans, designed to try to do what? To incorporate the Native nations under the U.S. flag. So blacks say, just go home and work with your people. And folks were saying, we can't do that. I had people say, you know, I I live in a community of Nazis. Mm. Right there in Illinois, I'm in a community of Nazis. I am scared as hell, Cole, to go over there. I'm Jewish. I can't go over there. They're after me, too. Mm-hmm. So it's very hard to begin to, to to do this work, but it requires 
us coming to the table, and that group needs to come to the table somewhere and sit down and talk about, Kevin, how to organize white communities, because we're talking about organizing communities. Now, if you're talking about urban centers, those whites will be included in the organization of any union basis we have. And I would suggest that communities are organized, as Dr. King proposed in 1966, that was 65, 66, uh, organizing what he called the Union 10 slums, coming into Chicago to the poorest communities Mm -hmm. and begin to organize those communities as a union so that all of the issues of a community would be incorporated under one banner. That did not say that you were not going to continue to organize, and in the case of Africans, to demand entry into white unions, especially private sector unions. Um, You still do that. But it's easier if you've got issues to address them from a home base. And then you're connected to political networks throughout the country of all of these organized unions. Mm -hmm. So whites in this instance will be included because they live in communities with blacks. Well, talk a bit about uh, the Poor People's Campaign 68. Some people say that's what got King killed. He was uniting all all the different groups, whites, blacks, natives, in a campaign really to start challenging capitalism. And, uh, you know, that'll do it. That'll well, bring your death sentence. We, we but talk about the Poor People's Campaign, which began as a result of community organizing of groups like the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee mm-hmm. on farms and plantations in the South, really hooking to the people. And the people began to rebel against their plantation owners. A plantation, if you lived on one, everything that you needed was on that, everything the master, the owner of the plantation thought you needed was on the plantation, which means that you lived there. Any education you got, you got it there. Any food you got, you got it there. And, of course, your work was there. And when you died, you were buried there. So black folks Mm -hmm. began to move off of these plantations. They they set up homeless cities outside of plantation zones, wherever they could set up these homeless cities. So this began to get people to begin to talk about uh, a poor people's campaign. Mm -hmm. Because many of of these areas, whites, too, were moving off and saying, well, you know, I don't want to be on the plantation either. I'm going off of this damn thing. It doesn't benefit any of us. So Uh we saw the coming together in Washington, the building of Resurrection City. They use the word resurrection. That is, assuming that there had been a community of the dead. And now, like Christ, they were doing what? They were resurrecting themselves, coming up, talking about a new way of living saying, no, no, right. no, no, we don't want that old stuff. We want cooperative communities. Right. We don't want that old stuff. We don't want to hear nothing about your dollars. Yep. Unless you're going to give them to us so that we can buy what we need to get yeah. our work done. So we saw all the groups coming together. That encouraged Cesar Chabert out of California with the Great Worker Strike. And yep. that encouraged the white communities out of Kentucky and all across the South to say, well, we're coming to join those black folks. Yeah, many of them said right off, one woman yeah. told me a white woman, she said, I'm a nigger too. I said, well, mm-hmm. what do you mean? I was going to insult that you called me a nigger. A nigger's a derogatory term. She said, I get the same treatment that you get. Mm-hmm. My kids don't get fed. My kids got diseases. My kids are starving just like yours. The only mm-hmm. difference between us is that I was a coward and a liar. I hid from the truth. But right. now that the truth is in my face, I accept it. I don't know what I can do other than join in and to this campaign to begin to build a poor right. people's network across this country where poor people are coming together. Well, I'm going to ask that. I, I just got a question for you over the uh, Internet here from a listener. Uh, she said, um, the adversary is working hard now to create a race war to distract us from the spiritual battles presently taking place. Do you, call the experience this division between the races as a way to distract people? Well, I don't think there's a great division between the races. If you're talking about if you're talking about Black Lives Matter, Black mm-hmm. Lives Matter has very inclusive of, of groups of whites who come, whether they were the kids right. out of Occupy Wall Street or whether they're others, they are out here fighting. The environmentalist kids are out here with eco-socialist movements, holding them all over the country, bringing together. And these are white, black, brown, red, and yellow movements. They're not exclusive mm-hmm. movements. So this notion of Trump, where he's trying to push this small right wing in this country, and I just have to say this. We have to give salutes to the Africana Studies programs, which they're trying to destroy, to the Women's Studies program, which the nation is trying to destroy, to the Latin Studies program, which the nation is trying to destroy, and to some of the Asian Studies programs. These people have educated a new generation of young 
whites, black, browns, and reds, and yellows, uh, with, with, with wars of, of all kinds, in order to bring themselves into being and to stay alive on college campuses. And that is the group that Barack Obama picked up. Those are the young mm-hmm. people that said, that, well, I vote for Barack Obama. Those young whites would normally not have done that. In fact, they normally would not have voted. So we see young whites coming on the scene no longer under the issue of race. And one little boy looked me in the face and said, Cola, I'm a nigger. I said, what do you mean you're a nigger? He said, you can say whatever you want to say. I am treated in the same way as any black person or any black youth in any any, any slum in the United States. Let's get it kind of reminds me, Coley, of you know, 100 years ago in the populist movement. And Bernie Saunders, maybe he had the potential of maybe doing this if he had to launch the third party. But blacks and whites were uniting across those racial lines, you know, in the labor movement. And uh, yeah, in the early 20th century, do you see that kind of thing happening again? Is there a basis for that now again in America? There's a strong basis for that. And we have to, we have to capture this moment. Capture this moment when we have a madman in the White House. And that man is just mad. I just don't think he can be despised otherwise. Capitalist, yes, but a mad capitalist. All capitalists are mad, as I'm concerned. While he's creating this moment where he's trying to pull up a group that cannot be pulled up again, and that is these radical whites, and they can only be pulled up for violence because there's no such thing as a return to the industrial age. The industrial age is gone. The age of industry is gone. The cybernetic age is here, and God is moving so fast that we have to try to grab it, define it. And Dr. King said we need to redefine our values. America needed to redefine her values. I would suggest that Canada needs to do the same. But if they can't redefine those values without the participation of indigenous populations and African po- populations as major leaders of the revolutions to do that defining, because we are the we are the victims, mm-hmm. and the victims' voices must be heard. The victims must be on the stage. But as we do this, Kevin, as we bring back the populist movements, if you want to refer, and there won't be the old populists anyway. But as we bring on the stage uh, new ways of bringing people together to organize, uh, to, first of all, just come together in a room to cry together and talk about what our issues are and the commonality about terrorist experiences under Western imperialism and and what that means for the world because we talk up here, we talk about natives in Canada who have been murdered every day, Africans in the U.S. who have been murdered every day, 40% of the missing in in, in the United States are African women. Look at the rest of the world. Look at what's happening to Mexico and Central and South America with the, with the crazy tariffs and the, and the World Bank. And I mean, just look at what's happening all across the planet. Because it's no longer we're just talking about us no. in the West. We are talking about an international crisis, a mammoth proportions, something we've never seen before. At yeah. least we've never been told we saw it before. So <laughs> that's yeah. what we're talking about, Kevin. So we're talking, I'm, I'm off to Paris I'm going to go over there and hook up with a union group that I met with in India last November, uh, and it was followed by but the first women's union was set up in India last November. Uh, but also it was followed by a major crackdown on the males who had, in fact, gone out and organized these women and organized male unions as well. I call them male because women certainly were not in them. Within the uh, urban zones. They not only picked up 13 of them, but they charged them with murder in the first degree. And they were all subject to be destroyed. So we really fought that fight, and they are still in jail. I think two might have gotten released, but most are still in jail. But at least they're no longer up to have their heads cut off. But it may be that they've taken you know, the hammer in other ways. So what I'm saying is, is this is an international movement. So I will be in Paris with people sitting down at the table talking about from a union perspective, how do we organize the base? Not just in Paris, but in South Africa, or Zania. I don't want to insult my ancestors down in Zania, down in a place called South Africa. But how do we do it in Zimbabwe? How do we do it um, in Tunisia? How do we do it in, in Yemen, which is facing a major genocide as we speak, with cholera running rapid everywhere, and Saudi Arabia on behalf of the United States, bums them night and day. They have no way, no fresh water sources, no way of doing anything, because they are what? Under bombs night and day. And this is an international picture. Look at what we're doing to Venezuela. Why? Every time a group of people tries to organize and get themselves up, the United States, along with our allies, 
figure a way to hook up with the local disgruntled ones and destroy them immediately. So what we're talking about is an international movement that involves the leadership of, of the people of Kanata and the people of the, 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 the African and others of the U.S., of us coming together, Kevin, to begin to carry out the work of um, of this International Tribunal of Crimes of, of, of Church and State as a number one step. That's right. Okay, can't start all over the place. If we start with the International Tribunal, call for I wanna, a trial of I want to get into that, uh, but I want, I want to ask you something first. Um, when we were talking earlier before about the role of whites working with with blacks and other groups, do you have any personal anecdotes of that happening back in the civil rights movement, those moments when that kind of unity happened? Anything you can, like a story you can tell us? Well, you know, the, the story is the story of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. In Mississippi, whites came in sporadically following what was called the Freedom Rides of 1961. Mm -hmm. And about 300 came through the state. But a small group of them uh, were able to come back and join with blacks who fell off from the Freedom Rides and began to organize rural Mississippi. Mega Wiley Evans, who I worked for, was organizing really urban Mississippi, but he had all these rural chapters across the state that had been there since the late 40s, the early 50s, and many of them was disgruntled because NACP's national and regional offices certainly were not providing the needed um, work or the needed resources that people needed if they got picked up because the cops said that you, you stole a, a, a bag of chicken feed. You applied for the University of Mississippi, and they accused you of stealing five bags of chicken feed and sentenced you to life in prison. And you can't get help from the National Office of NACP to fight your case. You can't get help with, 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 to take care of your family. So this, this, this created a, a group of people who were very dissatisfied with NACP. And when the outside groups came in, and people said, well, you come in here to develop literacy programs. So everybody began to hook in. And whites came to these projects who were part of the youth movement, some of them a little older than youth. And there were local whites as well because we had Bill Higgs out of Jackson, an attorney who was always under stress because they said he was a homosexual. I don't know what he was, wasn't my business. But he was always under stress. But he'd been there along with other whites in the state, a white sister who ran a newspaper that talked about the issues at all times. She refused, despite all of the wars against her, bombers included, refused to give up her press. He had another one out of Greenville, Mississippi. So I'm just using these as examples of whites already on the ground and other whites coming in and working with the youth movement, not coming in to lead, but coming in to work with these youth movements that were being formed under the leadership, particularly one under the leadership of uh, Robert Parrish Moses, of Student of the Coordinating Committee, and David Dennis, and Thomas Gaither of the Congress of Racial Equality. If I could interrupt for a minute, that's a really important point. You've talked about that before, how you, people come in as catalysts, not organizers. It's the people who become the organizers of themselves. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, only, only people can organize themselves. and that's what you, Because if you come in as a catalyst, what do you do? You take the pressure off, which allows people to generate the energy and the resources that are already there. Fannie Lou Hamer, who would become the... Uh, a picture post postwoman of the 1960s, uh, cotton picker, uh, who would become a major. In fact, she would become the sixth national leader of of, of the civil rights movement. Uh, she would be leader number six. But she she was uh, just worked in cotton field. That's what she did. She worked for a planter who threw her off of the plantation when she tried to register to vote. And she did what? She took that powerful voice of hers and music, and and her relationship to her neighbors, which we did not have. But we did what? We brought her on the stage, and she began then and to, to take advantage of prior training that she'd had across the years that she had not used and put it to work to organize just plain old sisters in the neighborhood, sisters in the church. And the next thing you know, they're singing, they're doing all kinds of things, and they're organizing even right down to Peter Pig's programs. They know the community. Local people know their communities in ways in which outsiders cannot know them. But as outsiders... We can come in and take the pressure that the sheriff is going to bring me, he's going to put right. behind. We can take the pressure of locating those Africans in the community who are going to make that call to the sheriff when they saw you out there trying to organize somebody, right? You ain't right, right. We had the same thing when we were occupying the churches. Some of the, some of the uh, Native people said to me, it's a good thing you were there, Kev, because the, the priest got angry at you, not at us. <laughs> that's right. That's right. You know, and that's good. I mean, that's the way you can use the system almost against itself. 
Well, the way we, we, people have been doing this for hundreds of years now. We did not have a new organizing strategy. We did mm-hmm. have a new way of saying, look, American democracy is unsafe for the world. American democracy is unsafe for the world. And since people didn't know what democracy was anyway, we were there to do what? To bring literacy workshops. So people began to understand, you know, what is this thing about anyway? What is all this crap that we're suffering under? So before we over there, Peter Pig programs, before we was over there, with craft workshops generated from the people, by the people, for the people. Because the catalyst comes in and points up the issues as well. Right. Clarifies so the people can see what's happening in their lives in a way in which they didn't see it otherwise. And they can also see the enemies among them, but they begin to understand that we can't go around fighting each other. We've got to organize here as community in a way in which we can bring this enemy of ours, our own family members, our own friends, or whoever, under control. And well, if that's the point, I mean, how do you sustain when you're building up a, a community-based movement and the TV cameras go and the official leaders and catalysts leave, how do people sustain it year after year in the community? Well, if you have not, Kevin, from the start, established mm-hmm. an organizing base that was about what community organization and not mobilization. Mm-hmm. You, if you mobilize, and if you look all across the South, anywhere SCLC was, for example, Dr. King's group, they were mobilizing for us, and they were good at it. However, when they would leave the Birminghams, when they came in and messed up and then left Selma, these, these are cities in crisis because the people did what? Were not organized from the ground up. Mm-hmm. You came in and built this top-down movement, and you were the top of the movement, and then you leave. Yeah. And you yeah. took with it what? Anything that there was there. The people are back mm-hmm. to where they started. And usually below that, because you're back where you started with an angry group of local politicians, an angry group of local legal officials and police and whatever, uh, they're going to punish you for what the others did. Right. See what I'm saying? So we have to be organized for the ground up movement. Yep. What's the difference? What would you say is the big difference now between now and the 60s? I mean, in terms of organizing people, did you find... Well, now we're organizing uh, the in, in America. I can't speak for Canada. In the United States, we're organizing communities that were crushed with drugs, with police invasions, with mass murder. We're now organizing those communities. Those are shattered communities. Families have been totally uh, stripped from each other. So that you're organizing disconnected units here. You organize them where youth oftentimes are totally disconnected from their families and have, in many cases, did a little respect for them. Because mm-hmm. there was no mama. I, I, you say you were a crack baby, a crack cocaine baby. Now we've got the new cocaine, which are the white babies. But in the old days, those were that came to war on the black community beginning in 1969 under President Nixon, who had an order that black people were to be destroyed, not just the black community, urban community, but black people in the community. So the best way to do that was with drugs. So they came mm-hmm. in with drugs and, of course, with police yep. violence, and these communities were shattered. So you no longer have that family unit intact. Right. Mama's on drugs, daddy's on drugs and in jail, um, yep. and you're killing each other. Everybody talks about black crime. black crime. That was yep. a creation of the Nixon administration, followed by all the way up to 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 to, to Richard, to Bill Clinton, who will have 163 laws put in place to finalize what Nixon started right. to destroy the black community. So you're coming into what communities that have been torn apart. You're trying to put them back together. And meanwhile, you got to fight gangs. And by fight gangs, I mean you got to really go to the mind of that young person who's out there as a drug person, running drugs, who sees the only way that I can make a living is selling drugs to my own people who get their well, welfare yeah. dollars, and then I show up with my drugs. But now they've got a new group that they're selling to because whites are now on drugs in the United States, and they're the major group on drugs, and there's an epidemic, a cocaine epidemic going here. Yeah. Well, come in Colin, you repeated almost word for word what Peter Yellowquill said on my show a couple of months ago, and he came on and he talked about in 1990 when there was the Oka standoff, the Mohawks were taking up arms to keep the Canadian Army off their land in Quebec. Well, that same period, right in 1990, the, the government, uh, Canada, 
ordered the Indian chiefs on all the reservations, they started flooding the reservations with drugs. Now every single chief who's on the government payroll is the drug dealer, keeping everybody hooked oh, on the drugs. Exactly the same pattern. Those are the, the ones who threaten us to go and try to do our work. The, the, the goons, the, uh, you know, <laughs> the bad so council drug dealers. How do we take that? That's a tough place to be. We're in a tough place to be. There's another way of saying it, but it'd be foul, and I won't say it. It's male anyway. <laughs> All the foul yeah. jumping on the male. And so as yeah. a female, I'm not going there. But <laughs> it is a tough place to be when you have got to organize, educate, organize, educate, agitate with your own leadership. Yeah. And we're in that same space, and we've been here for years. Because with yeah. the shooting of Dr. King, with the shooting of Malcolm X, with the shooting of Megabras, it means that we got a leadership that was supplanted by the government. And now we got to fight that stuff. We yep. were doing very well with fighting the old NAACP leadership. In fact, we changed a lot of that, and they are now among some of the best ones in the country. But that new group that came up is where we are, and we have to talk about how do we step back, take a look at community, and then as organizers begin to figure out where do we start. Mm -hmm. I suggest we start by going into communities quietly and talk about organizing the union base, meeting with the unions in the park, the youth in the in, 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 in the parking lots, meeting with the youth uh, in the alleys, meeting with them wherever we can find them. But also meeting with the senior communities in these mega churches, <laughs> uh, the whole church community here. You had to destroy the church community for us because the church community was our major base. They had to destroy the cottage community because it was a major base for youth. So all of those have been destroyed, and Trump said this year, our President Trump, that madman down in Washington, that he would not even give bonds to these black colleges yeah. to be able to rebuild their infrastructure. That he would not do that. Yeah. These are the colleges that were formed beginning immediately after slavery, right up into the mid-20th century, where blacks actually came together and formed more than 130 colleges. And we trained the world in our colleges. Mm -hmm. We all spent a couple of years, or at least a couple of sessions, down at, at, at Howard University. The first president of, of Ghana in Africa, which was the first independent state beneath the Sahara, came out of a black college. The first president of Nigeria in Africa comes out of two black colleges. One of them is dead now because they couldn't get funding support. So when you begin to look at Malaysia, uh, the vice president comes way out of a black college. You look at Iran, their students right down to 19... Um, um, to the to to, to love, I guess it was about 2000. So no, there'd be 1970s. The 70s and 80s were into black colleges. And understand now they're still coming into black colleges from Iran. They're also coming in now from Saudi Arabia to black colleges. So we were the what the one open space you could come into. Mm -hmm. And they went after that space because of the civil rights movement. Right. Well, that's the so thing, you know, now we're, in now, so much of what we're, we're talking about, we're dealing in a condition of a police state. People are just fighting every day to survive. How do we create those openings, those, those uh, you know, peaceful, liberated spaces where people can sit and think and plan and not be under attack every moment? That's kind of a front-line issue. Well, how do you deal with that? Well, it is a front-line issue, but I think it's an issue that we, that we quietly come into, Kevin. I don't think that's an mm -hmm. open issue. I don't think that's an issue that we discuss in open space. Oh, yeah, details um, for sure. We've got to figure out how to do it. When we're spied on every second, when our phones are tapped, our computers are tapped, everything we have is tapped. Mm -hmm. Where do we go? Not to overthrow a government, but where do we go to, 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 to organize and uplift our people so they can begin to deal with that government? Right. Build the new society in the shell of the old, like the Wobblies used to say. <laughs> we do it like we did in the old days. We figure it out. Yeah. And, uh, and we're going to do it, and they know we're going to do it, and they know that we are going to get young whites whose minds are open, older whites who are minds are open, to join us in building a revolutionary movement in the Western Hemisphere mm -hmm. that reaches its arms out to Africa, Asia, what was called Australia, and all of Europe. We're going to do that. Mm -hmm. Now, I was in Libya, and that was one of the requests from the late Muammar Gaddafi, that we return to the U.S., because he, he had this whole conference that he did on just what we we're talking about, all of these displaced and destroyed communities across the world. He started out looking at them in Asia, where young blacks and others came out of Africa, 
to try to get across the Sahara. Many of them died by the hundreds in the Sahara to get to Libya, to get to Algeria, to get to Tunisia uh, and Egypt, and from there to try to get to Europe to get jobs and any jobs. Sisters who left home knowing they were going to become prostitutes, knowing there was nothing else available to them. But they had no other choices. You know, what do you do when your family's dying? So he was working with that. He was very upset. By he, in fact, he lectured the president of Libya, the prime minister of Libya. I'm not Libya, but of, um, of, of Italy. And, he, and the prime minister agreed with him. But in the meanwhile, there was a plot to keep him from doing his work. 882 of us came to Libya to talk the same talk that you and I are talking now mm-hmm. about how to organize people from all the groups in Australia were there. All those groups came in. So you had the indigenous populations, the recent African immigrants, the whites, everybody at the table along with the East Indians saying, you know, how do we address these issues? Mm. But, of course, they had a plan for him. He said they had it anyway. But the, the, the group that came from the U.S. and Canada and Central America, we didn't have a Central American representative, uh, so we had to speak for Central America, a little turtle, if you will agreed that we would come back and organize from Canada, Canada, to all of Central America as one unit, one unit, to address our common issues, our common issues. And, of course, a major one of that is the imperial colonizer who has us all under this Mm -hmm. capitalist madness, some mass murder, mass incarcerations, mass genocides of all sorts going on everywhere. We agreed we would organize, and I am so pleased to be on the phone with you because that means that a part of what we've been trying to put together, and I need to be thinking on, is how do we hook with Kanata? How do I hook with the indigenous population? It was good to be at Dick Gregory's funeral and know that nine nations came in the house with music and song, came in with their fists up ready to do what? for the kind of organizing we're talking about. So it was good to see them in one spot at one time, nine of them. It was good to be at his funeral, to see Africans from all over the country, whites from all over the country, including democracy now, in that room, talking about where from here. Not that proud of anybody. In our last five minutes, I want to give you the chance. Where from here. Sorry. I want to give you, we've only got about five minutes left, this time, but I wanted to give you a chance to uh, make any announcements, websites, anything you want to push, things coming up right now. I want to talk about the Judicial Violence Symposium set up by a group of local people right here in the United States um, two years ago to begin to talk about addressing the issues we are talking about now, but to address them in terms of how do we pull together resources, how do we pull together national journals, how do we pull together a national group, because the African in the United States has returned to at least 1905 in terms of our position in the political economy, our position within the criminal justice system. And in 1905, we were afraid that the genocide would be complete. We came into the 20th century thinking that the genocide against Africans in the U.S. would be complete. We came in with the genocide against the natives, natives being completed. Mm-hmm. So we've got to go with the Native then back to 1905. So the Judicial Violence Symposium will start looking at health, where the genocide is taking place. And these are we're talking about people that are giving you drugs and stuff to kill you, vaccines designed to kill you, refusing to treat your medical conditions appropriately within the medical system, and killing medical people by the scores who have developed new vaccines, who have developed new ways of treating issues. So then looking at health, then looking at the political economy, looking at economics, looking at the referendum. We've never been allowed as Africans to heal ourselves. Never. There's a refusal. So it was almost as if, you know, you you got off the boat from London. I didn't get on the boat in London. My people came in here from Africa. This language I speak is not my language. Mm-hmm. Nothing that I have is mine. But the refusal to allow us to address that because the psyche has been damaged. And we need to be able to address our psychological ears, and then to begin to look at the issue of the criminal justice system as we look at other issues on the judicial violence umbrella. And so we are out trying to get that done. So that's the judicialviolencesymposium.com, judicialviolencesymposium.com. If you want to write to us, it's the Judicial 
Violence Symposium at gmail.com. The Judicial Violence Symposium at gmail.com. If you want to call us, it's 646-657-7207. That's 646-657-7207. If you want to write to us with the general post office, our post office is P.O. Box 7631, New York, New York 10150. That's P.O. Box 7631. New York, New York, 10150. Thank you, Carly. And, uh, I, you know, you're inspiring me to launch the Caucasian Healing Project. What do you think? That's beautiful. Let's do it. Caucasian Healing Project coming up. Uh, thank you once again, Lava. It's great having you on the show. We'll talk to you again soon. Kevin, you're the best. All right. You too, sister. And so Love we've you. got to deal with the International Tribunal and where they're headed, so let me know. All right. We'll talk soon. All right, Doc. Thanks a lot. And that was Coley Clark, my sister from New York City. If you want to follow up on any of this, you can write to us, thecommonland at gmail.com. Again, folks, follow our work, itccs.org, murderbydecree.com. We're going to be back next week, and please tune in, because we're going to be talking about our upcoming new program, Here We Stand really a spiritual and political launching pad into kind of a new level of struggle. So I hope you all tune in next week. And until then, follow our work at well. If you put my name in, Kevin Anna, to Amazon.com, you'll see all our recent books. This being September, we want you students to get out there on the campus, start flogging our books, especially Murder by Decree, The Crime of Genocide in Canada. See it at MurderByDecree.com. Until next week, stay strong, stay clear. We love you. I've traveled around this country From shore to shining shore It really made me wonder The things I heard and saw I saw the weary farmer A plow